my voice is totally warmed up and ready to go. Uh, everything else, not so much. Gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Raj Nation Innovations Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan, aka the Raj Nation. I am your show's host, the founder of Raj Nation Innovation, as well as a hip hop artist and a yoga instructor. Above all else, I am a storyteller. And I am joined by my co host, Victoria Cohen. Victoria is the voice behind the blog almondsandasana.com. She is a fellow yogi and a community activist focused on helping you make lifestyle choices that positively impact you and the people you serve. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, and musicians about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help creative thinkers like you and I better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. Is real talk with real people doing real big things to uncover the real side of success. Now, before we dive into today's conversation, I would like to extend an invitation if you are not a member already. Join our tribe by going to discoveryourinnerawesome.com. Enter your email address there, and you will never miss another episode of the show, getting a notification in your inbox every single Monday when we launch a new episode. You'll also get my stories, advice, and tips throughout the month on how you as a startup can make your pitch a performance. All right, let's dive in now to our conversation on today's episode of Discover Your Inner Awesome. Welcome, everybody, to Discover Your Inner Awesome. Today on the show, we have Denise Hamilton, founder and CEO of Watch Her Work. Denise, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. So we met uh, a little while ago, not too long ago, at the Fund Conference in Austin, Texas, and I think uh, I think you know we were able to hit it off pretty quickly in just a few minutes. So I'm <laughs> really glad to have you on the show today. Our topic is around creating an inclusive work culture, specifically the question: How do you create an inclusive work culture? Why is this on your mind? Why is this important to you? I'm kind of low key obsessed with this topic, to be honest with you. I think that um, it's all about access. Right. Like I think that human there's no resource that's more powerful or more valuable than human resources. And when I think about our country, when I think about our competitiveness, it you know, it seems baseline common sense that we've got to figure out a way to create an on ramp for every member of our society to participate in the best of us. Right. Whether that be the tech sphere, whether it be, you know, um, entrepreneurship, we've just got to create a way that we can all participate. And so I, I've kind of made it my life's work of, of a sorts to um, to just kind of study this issue of how do you plug in, fit in? And then the flip side of that, how do we as employers create an inclusive workplace? Right. How do we make room for everyone? And when I say an inclusive workplace, I don't mean um, numbers. I, I mean inclusive, truly inclusive around ideas 
and thoughts and perspectives, how do you create that energy in your workplace? Because I, I don't I don't think it's just a nice to have. I think it is a critical element to really being effective. I'm really excited to talk about this because it's something that I've it's the topic I care a lot about as well. And I think, you know, rightfully so, it's getting more and more attention. Still a lot of work needs to be done, but it is getting more attention by a lot of different people. So to, to be so passionate about this as you are, there has to be obviously a certain amount of life experiences, personal and <laughs> professional, that have led to this passion. So let's dial it all the way back. Can you tell us where did you grow up and what's like- I was raised, yeah, I was raised in a log cabin. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, where where did you grow up and um, what's, I guess, your most transformative experience until, I'd say, high school or college? Oh, wow. Well, I am an immigrant. We um, came here, my parents brought me here when I was about five years old. And I remember fighting every day at school because the kids would teach, tease me about my Jamaican accent. And um, just every day, just just fighting uh, and figuring out, okay, I got to stop fighting and I've got to figure out a way to connect with these people. I've got to figure out a way to um, not blend in, but to create some harmonious experience. So, you know, in growing up in New York, I, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, growing up in New York in a Jamaican community, I might as well have lived in Jamaica. Everybody around me was from Jamaica, you know, in terms of my immediate experience. Until you went to school, that's when you kind of um, mixed with a bunch of other people. And so getting to learn how to be what I call biculturally socialized um, was really important, like learning how to code switch even within the African-American community, how do you code switch between what your cultural experience is and what um, their cultural experience is to find some common ground? Um, then I got into Stuyvesant High School in um, New York, which is a magnet school um, for gifted and talented. And that was the biggest culture shock that I like had ever experienced. You think coming to the United States was a culture shock. Going to Stuyvesant was a huge culture shock. You know, I think I believe the school at that time was probably 40% Asian um, and a very small percentage of African American and Hispanic. And so learned that was probably the first place that I got to see the the transcendent nature of being a quote unquote minority. Um, you know, here are these, all these white kids and Asian kids that they have the same baseball caps that we have on and their heads are bobbing the hip hop list just like ours are, like we're all the same. But then the flip side of some of the institutional racism um, elements of how guidance counselors would advise us to do things differently than they did the, the white students. Um, so it, it was, that's, I think, where kind of the spark really um, started for me of this understanding of like, how do you blend in? How do you fit in? What does, is it a salad bowl? Is it a melting pot? That's kind of where all those questions started bubbling for me. And I just took it to a whole different level when I went to college. I went to Abilene Christian University where literally it was 2% black. In Abilene, Texas, small um, small city in in West Texas, and um, that's where I really got the most profound education of my life. 
It's, it's funny, like, as you're telling your story here, my, my, the way I'm able to keep track with it is like, well, I know rapper has talked about bed so Stuy Best in High School makes sense to me. I know, mm-hmm. I know. And then, like, Abilene Christian, like, the former Bears, Chicago Bears player, went to Abilene Christian. Like, this is how I'm associating yeah. with your own history, having no geographic uh, uh, reference point, really, for my, for my At own all. life. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I got to say, like, you know, that was important to me. Like, I, wh- one thing I learned when I got to um, ACU was, you know, I come from New York. I am in the best, biggest city, most amazing city in the world. Like, what what y'all have to teach me in this little uh, podunk town? And I got to tell you, I was meeting people and they had been to Prague and Paris and China and they had been all over the world and I had been to New York, you know, and I'd, I'd travel back and forth to Jamaica every year since I um, uh, got to New York. So, it really struck me of what does it mean to be cosmopolitan? What does it mean to really um, be educated and exposed? Like what, um, there's more than one way to skin a cat. It's, you know, I got confronted with the issue of guns and of um, the rural, the difference of the rural person's experience versus the city person's experience and how absolutely different it was and how, you know, we had devised arguments and discussions based on one perspective because we weren't exposed to the other perspective. And so got to really learn like the importance of really dialing in to someone else's upbringing and perspective and, and energy as you try to solve a problem together. Um, and I think it's a skill that has taken me throughout my entire life. And I wish quite frankly, more people had it because it's just, it just has become our human nature to kind of entrench and dig in and yell at the other side about our perspective. But we're not taking the time to figure out where the, where's the common ground. We're talking past each other, not to each other. Um, and I have to say my experience in, in little bitty West Texas is really what taught me that I won't lie. It was really tough. Um, it was, um, there were times I felt extremely isolated. You know, I, I, I have a couple of friends that I went to school with. They're African-American women that I think of as stunningly gorgeous and none of us dated. Like we dated almost zero the whole time we were there. And so imagine going through college and like, where that's where you're supposed to be dating and connecting and whatever. But, you know, guys would look at us, but they would never actually like reach out and say, hey, let's go grab a movie or whatever. So the, the experiences of being kind of, um, you know, a bird underwater <laughs> is, uh, uh, have, have really shaped me and made me um, really appreciative of people that create on-ramps, people that reach out, people that um, create a space for you to fit in. And I do believe whenever you are the dominant culture, in whatever situation, it's your responsibility to create a space for others to fit in. Um, And so all of those experiences have really fed kind of how I think about the world. You mentioned when you were in um, high school that, um, for example, 
the um, guidance counselors sort of counseled you differently, right, depending on your ethnicity or your background? And um, did you experience that in college too? Like not necessarily with counselors, but the way you were maybe advised or supported in terms of finding jobs or internships or, you know, whatever was to come after college? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a, um, a brutal underestimation right it's it's endemic it's it's a part of our society on almost every front it's a brutal brutal underestimation no matter how um incredible you are the belief system is well you're only going to be able to go but so far um and then there's a place there's a part of this discussion that i think is super important like there's this idea that if i learn to be more like you then I am more, um, I have more potential to be successful. And, you know, I grew up in a hip hop generation. And I actually, I mean, I was in Brooklyn when hip hop was born. I'm, I'm a little bit older than the average startup founder. And like, I don't just, I just don't share that belief. I've seen people who used to sell CDs out of the trunk of their cars. Now hip hop is a dominant musical genre on the planet. So I don't believe, I don't operate from the construct that I have to do it your way to be able to contribute. I have to do it my way at a level of excellence. And I think very often that's the problem in this discussion. You know, how do, how do you create inclusion where you really allow the person to be the person? and to contribute what they need to contribute for them to reach their top level, as opposed to trying to create some conformity. Um, that's actually my problem with the education discussion. People always say, you know, um, how, do you, how do you create, you know, how are we gonna get more um, uh, people of color and women in tech? You know, oh, the answer is education. Yeah, I don't believe the answer is education. The, the answer that education is the answer is a is a 20 year solution. Like we just wait, wait 10 years, wait 15 years until we have a new crop of really smart kids and then 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 we'll do inclusion because we would have quote unquote trained them, taught them whatever like and I'm like, yeah, no, you know what? I'm going to go to the the master P method. I'm going to go like I'm going to do what Run DMC did. I'm going to print do the CDs and 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 my cousin Ray Ray is going to do the the um cover and he's going to do the art and he's going to do like we're just going to do it. You know what? How about we just do it and you guys will catch up. Like this is not the first time in our history that minorities have been locked out of a sector. It's glamorous now. But at the time, those guys went to every record label and they, the door was slammed in their face. And they were told this isn't a viable um, musical genre. Nobody's going to buy this. Your voice doesn't matter. I mean, all of these things, it's unbelievable now because it's so dominant. But um, I take a lot of lessons from that. I, I really do. And I think I don't want to wait until you educate, you know, uh, the kids that are nine right now to participate, you know, like, like this is the definition of America, right? Um, when I think about America, America has systematically excluded black people from every wealth generating experience in our history. Every single one, whether it be, uh, 
sharecropping and how that was bastardized, even like even post-slavery, like we're not even going to talk about slavery. Let's talk about the gold rush. Let's talk about the land grab and the settling of the West. Let's talk about um, the GI Bill. Let's talk about every single one. I refuse to be left out of the tech revolution. I just refuse to be left out. So if I've got to do it with gum, tape, rubber band, um, whatever, I'll do it. And if, if there's a force or a group of people that don't believe in me and don't believe in my ability to do it, that's okay. That's when I channel my inner run DMC. We're going to do a departure here from what we know we have been doing on this show because I love the way you're vibing on this stuff. And I just want to dive further into this topic. Uh, basically, we're going to we're going to skip over your work history to just to just further sink our teeth into this topic because you're on a roll right now. Um, <laughs> so. Again, I'm, I'm vibing with a lot of what you're saying. Um, one of the things you mentioned was the idea of rather than having to do it your way to be successful, being able to excel in, in my way, right? In the, in the third right. person sense. Now, I, I, I totally agree with you. How do you reconcile this with the fact that like there are certain expectations around an industry around a job type around a fuck like like I, I guess the, the baseline I could liken it to is like if you're going to interview for a finance job like you don't come in in like sweatpants right you go in and you wear a suit so right that that's like the very baseline example I can give you but to take it like extract it even further in your case you're saying like I'm gonna do the duct tape rubber band however I need to so how do you do that knowing that there's still almost like Social rules. norms. Yeah, and, social norms and rules that need to be played by. Well, you know, I think there's a really powerful benefit um, to me being an older founder. Um, you know, this is not my first rodeo, right? I have worked in the entertainment industry. I've worked um, for AOL. I ran um, marketing and promotions for South Florida for AOL. Um, I transitioned to, uh, I've, I've launched a magazine Jones Magazine, um, which is still uh, operating today. And I worked in commercial real estate. I was one of the only women. I was, I was Actually, I was the first woman, first black person in my role in six states in any of the top 10 firms for, um, for CBRE. So I have been the only and the first and the, but I, I have, I've worn the uniform. Right. Like if you if every job has a uniform, if you want to be a firefighter, you got to put on the firefighter gear. Right. So I totally get what you're saying. But I'm also because of that experience able to peep game. And sometimes it's all it's just game. Like the uniform is not a like you've decided that uniform is a hoodie. So we're all going to put on hoodies. But if I put on a hoodie, the cops throw me to the floor. If you put on a hoodie, it's quirky and and rebellious, right? The rules don't work. The, the, the code matching doesn't work for all of us, <laughs> right? Like in terms of, so, so what I'm really careful about is that we never pass off unconscious bias for facts, that we don't codify bias. And I think sometimes in that uniform, in the discussion of norms, we are exclusionary. I mean, and that's just, uh, that's just a fact. Um, and so I'm really careful to spend my time figuring out what is the wheat and what's the chaff? What's real here and what 
what really matters. What does it matter that I have more customers or that I've raised X dollars? Does it matter that I like what really matters in here and try to focus my attention and my energy and my effort on the things that really matter. There are people that will never accept, um, any kind of alternative way of, of thinking about this or executing um, a tech business or entrepreneurship effort or whatever. There, there are those people. Those are not my people, right? Like I just, I've got to, I've got to create the space for myself that I'm doing the work that I'm passionate about, passionate about, that I'm creating my reality and I'm not allowing someone else's sense of what it's supposed to be um, to shape kind of how I interact with the world. I'll give you a good example. So I live in Houston, Texas, and we have a, um, the uh, hour from us, we've got the beach in Galveston. And it's the water's brown, right? It's a big joke. The water's brown. It's not like, you know, crystal blue, Caribbean blue water. And um, because of some kind of current in the water, um, the water was kind of temporarily blue. And it was all over the news, like, oh my gosh, Galveston water is blue. Like, you got to go check it out. So my husband and I go down to Galveston. And um, I remember stepping down the steps onto the beach and my feet touching the sand. And the sand is really powdery, fine, and lovely. Like, it feels like you're stepping on a cloud. And I said to my husband, gosh, I just love this sand here in Galveston. It's like the best. I've been on a lot of beaches, but this sand is really incredible. Well, we get to the water's edge and it's a little bluer than normal, but it's still brown. (laughs) And and my husband, like we had this conversation about the fact that, well, it's never going to be blue because the dirt underneath it, the, the ground underneath it is a darker color than in the Caribbean or in, you know, other beaches around the world. Like it's not going to be blue. And that really struck me. I don't like, you know, it struck me, it hit me like we have been almost like our own little propaganda of this isn't lovely because it's not blue. These kids are playing and frolicking in the water. The breeze was blowing. Everybody's having an amazing, lovely day by the water, but it's not in my mind, it's supposed to be Caribbean blue and it's not Caribbean blue. Like that means it's inadequate. But back, step back a second. Why did I love the sand? Remember I stepped up and I touched the sand and I was like, gosh, it's so powdery and, and fine. And it's just so great. Well, that's why the water is brown. It's because it's so fine that every time the tide comes in, it, it sloshes up the, the, the sand at the bottom. So it's not clear. The very thing I love about it is the thing that makes it different. And what's wrong with us? Is, are we wrong because is, is Galveston inadequate because it's not blue? Or are we wrong because we keep wanting it to be blue even though that's not its nature? And I think that to me is like the embodiment of this issue of diversity. Like we have a picture in our head. Oh, a banker looks like this. A president looks like that. Like this is what it's supposed to be. And here comes this other person or this other um, um, being that kind of doesn't match what the picture is in our head of what that is supposed to look like. 
right? And we don't know how to reconcile that. So we decide, oh wait, this person is outside of our norms. But what if they're incredible? What if they're the equivalent of our powdery, beautiful Galveston sand? And we've lost that. We've lost that value because we eliminated them because they didn't fit what our picture looked like. So I think the, the kind of the work of my entire life has been about taking the time to figure out what's incredible about you, you know, generic you, and how do we graft that in to the bigger, broader story so that we all grow and we all benefit from that. So yeah, there's a uniform. Yeah, there's a, there's a quote unquote way it's done. But I have to tell you, I'm not so sure about the way it's done. I, I often wonder, like, you know, I wonder if there were any grownups in the room at Facebook, would they have taken political ads in, in payments in rubles? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, like, the bottom line is, like, they don't have it figured out either. And I'm terrified, literally terrified about the idea that people who can't get social media right, we have essentially destroyed or, or significantly damaged our democracy. Like, we don't talk about it in those terms, but that's really what social media has done. Um, so the people that are in charge and have made some of these horrible mistakes, guess what they're going to be in charge of next? Artificial intelligence, facial recognition, gene splicing. We have to get this right. We need more people at the table that say, ho, ho, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know we can do it, but should we do it? And to consider you can't have 5,000 people making decisions for billions. And that's literally the environment that we have right now that all walk the same, look the same, talk the same, think the same, but that's not how their customers are. So I think there's gotta be some reconciliation and some inclusion to consider, hey, have you guys thought that ISIS members are gonna help each other find each other on Facebook? Have you considered that this is gonna be a tool that could be used in this deleterious way? Um, those conversations need to be had. And I don't think you have them unless you have all the people at the table. So um, yeah, there's norms, but I'm, I'm calling that about at least 60% of those norms are BS. Well, it's, it's interesting kind of everything that you were just saying. And I, I, I'm just sort of thinking of my own personal experience. And so I studied engineering in college and then I worked for Pepsi for a number of years um, sort of in the route that my engineering degree would take you into supply chain and operations. And I'm not what you typically think an engineer would look like or act like or whatever, whatever that stereotypical thought is. Um, and I know that because I was told that many, many, many times. Um, and in some cases, it probably was to my benefit that I, you know, was pretty comfortable speaking and, uh, you know, public speaking or, you know, having certain kinds of conversations that maybe weren't expected of someone with that educational background. But then in a lot of other instances, I felt like it was um, a deterrent, not that it like, not that it meant I didn't get a job because of it, but it was almost like a, a joke. Like, oh, huh, you're an engineer, not expected. And then it kind of makes you feel over time like, well, should I be doing this? Like, maybe this isn't the thing I should be doing because I don't look like what people would expect, you know? And not, and not, that, not that that's like the reason that I'm not doing it now, but, um, but just sort of thinking back on that, I definitely have had a lot of moments over time where people have 
acted surprised that that's what my background is. And it definitely makes you second guess what you're doing because other people don't, ex that isn't the expectation that they had for you. You know, so Absolutely. I think that's just kind of, I hadn't really thought of it like that before. It's kind of interesting. And I think it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. yeah. Not only is it interesting, it's exhausting. And people really underestimate. And it's kind of why I don't really play the game. Like, I, I, I kind of, I'm on the edge of tech. I love being invited to speak at conferences and that kind of, like, and I definitely do that. I just spoke at Collision. You know, you and I met at, at Fun. Like, I, I do that kind of part of it. But I don't really play the game. I just, I sit in my house in Houston and I build my company. Because... Um, I really believe that you have to protect your magic and there's just a, there's just people who don't understand you and don't value you and don't, you know, have, do you belong? Do you not belong? Should you be here? Should you not be here? Like, that's your problem. That's not mine. And I don't really, I like kind of have a strict policy of not taking that into my spirit. Um, you don't get to decide if I belong here. I decide if I belong here. And I think I can do that because I had so much success in my other careers that I know my value. I don't even know how you come into tech as a 21 year old, 23 year old trying to forge a way. Like it's, it's exhausting, <laughs> you know? And <laughs> I, I have that benefit of, I believe in me and I know what I'm capable of and I've, and I have a track record um, that, that and that really empowers me, I think, to speak in a way that others can't speak because I, I see it. I know what you're doing. It, it's not an accident that, you know, these little microaggressions that we all have to tolerate. It's, it's not an accident. It's intentional. It's to create a space that this is ours. This is how we do it. You don't necessarily fit in. We may tolerate you coming in a little and you can stay right here, but don't think you can go too much further because this is ours, right? And I don't, it's the internet. It's everyone's. Get out of here. What are you talking about? <laughs> Beat it. Like, you know, and I think that's really, um, um, powerful and I'm fortunate in that I'm able to think like that. Um, but I don't think that's true for everyone, right? They need more support. I was able to self-fund my business. Everybody's not able to do that, you know? So I, I totally get that when you're in a fundraising space, but now I have people calling me. Uh, VCs are calling me. Hey, hey, can we talk about watch your work? Can we, whatever. And, and that's the position I wanted to be in, which is weird because a year ago they were telling me, oh, this is never going to work. You know, I don't know about this idea. Now, how are you going to make money? And that it, like all of that, like if, what if I had taken that into my spirit? What if I had believed that? What if I had let those microaggressions like, you know, slice off a little piece of my magic every day? You just can't have it. It's mine. And so when I when I talk to groups um, of underrepresented founders, that's like the most important thing I say to them. Protect your magic. Do not let anybody steal the essence of you. Believe in your idea. Bet on your idea. Of course, you should learn. Of course, you should grow. Of course, you should um, seek out mentorship and build relationships. But don't ever let anyone steal your magic. Your current venture, Watch Her Work, is really about inclusion at the end of the day, specifically uh, helping women with career advice 
mm-hmm. you know, as, as you say it online, providing professional women, closing the achievement gap for professional women by providing the career advice they need when they need it, how they need it. And I think it's, you know, as we hear you talk about all of your passion around inclusion and your life experiences and your opinions, I think it's almost like this company is essentially just like the manifestation of that belief at the end of the day. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's the physical like embodiment of my of my soul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People always ask me, Are we, what's your exit? And I was like, wait, exit? <laughs> like it's but this is like my identity. Um, yeah, it's it's um you know, I started I started to watch her work to solve, essentially to solve my own problem. Um, I had been um, at that time like an executive for about 25 years. And because of um, being the only African-American or the only woman in all these different situations, I was, um, you know, kind of a target for mentees. Hey, can I pick your brain? Hey, can I take you to lunch? Hey, can we grab a coffee? I can't have coffee 20 times a day. I have to (laughs) actually do my job. And it really occurred to me, like I was talking to my peers that were also like successful executives and they felt the same way. Like I want to help, but dude, I'm breathing, I'm breathing my own rare air. These women don't see their own kids. You know, I mean, they don't get to go to the school play and whatever, because their jobs are so demanding. And then it it just kind of struck me like, what is this? How do we get here that now this small group of women that have broken through and are, um, you know, successful now have the responsibility for closing the achievement gap? It's their responsibility to mentor the 70 million women behind them and, and end patriarchy in the workforce. Like, how did that happen? How did that that expectation shift to this small group of women um, and that it's unrealistic? And that's why it doesn't happen. So I was like, this model is completely broken. Um, You know, the other thing, like if somebody did take a mentor, if they took two or three, you know, young women a year, guess who they pick? They pick the sparkly, bright, pretty girl that reminds them of themselves when they were young. Well, so you're in trouble if you're a petite Asian woman that's soft-spoken or a heavyset African-American woman who may be rough around the edges. Like who's going to mentor you? Right. So we have this construct that's set up that this is your path. You want to get ahead. You need a mentor. But, oh, yeah, there aren't enough and you don't have the power to make them mentor you. Fundamental, fundamentally broken model. So it just occurred to me that, you know, with technology, we could leverage, we could scale mentorship. Right. Instead of spending an hour with this one person at lunch. If you spend an hour with me, you can touch 10,000 women. And so that's what we, that's what we do every day. So we are, um, I just turned on the camera. I had no background in tech. I literally went to South by Southwest. I bought a camera at one of the um, booths <laughs> and I turned it on and I started filming my friends that were executives and then their friends started stepping forward and then complete strangers started stepping forward and on and on and on. And now we have over 6,000 videos with a goal of 25,000 by the end of the year. And um, we cover everything from how to ask for a raise, how to tell your boss you're pregnant. What do you do if a client hits on you? um, How do you negotiate severance? Um, It just really... Uh, hit me that we were telling women to do stuff, but we weren't telling them how to do it and what that really looks like. And we had this glut 
of celebrity advice. Like I, um, I, what's, what's, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's book. She's got a book cover. It's, it's not that hard. I was like, girl, you have three nannies. You have a nanny. Get out <laughs> it of is that hard. <laughs> it's really that hard. It's, I was, and, and it just struck me like, you know, women that are, I, I love Kate Middleton, but right after a baby is born, you're in full hair and makeup and on and that, like all of those things, they really make women feel insecure. Like, I don't know how to do this. I don't have the language when, when I'm in this board meeting or this, just a, a business meeting and you know, Rick mansplains me, mm-hmm. what do I do? I know it's not right. I know he shouldn't do it. But what do I do? What do I say? If I haven't been socialized that way, um, where am I going to get those skills? And so I'm beaten up, but nobody's teaching me how to do it. And that's really where I wanted to step in. You know, if you go to, if you take two four-year-olds to the playground right now, today, two four-year-olds, and you watch the little boy go up, climb up the monkey bars, if he falls down, what does the mom do? She runs in, checks for mortal wounds, dusts him off, pats him on the butt and sends him back into the playground. That little girl falls. What do we do? Oh, honey, are you okay? Are you okay? Come sit by mommy. You want a cookie? <laughs> we socialize men and women completely differently in our country. So it makes sense that when people are in the workforce, They've got some stuff they've got to unlearn, right? You've learned collaboration. So you're so collaborative that you don't know how to compete sometimes. You've learned how to be nice. Well, this environment may not tolerate nice. You know, like you have to learn how to adapt to a male construct. It's not right or wrong. It's just different. And so I hope that we can be a translator of sorts of how do you need to think about this? How do you need to handle microaggressions? How do you need to handle um, inappropriate advances? How do you need to handle your imposter syndrome? Um, who's telling us how to do that? You know, what well, we see are blog articles about the perfect capsule wardrobe and five questions you should ask on an interview. Like, that's not our problem, you know? And there's a stat, I think it's something like 18% of women boast a successful mentor-mentee relationship. And that number plummets as you go up in your career. So what do I take from that? What does that mean to me? If you are looking for the bathroom, you just got here, you just started your career, you're just looking for the bathroom, there's a million people to help you. But if you're looking for the boardroom, you're on your own. And that's the place that we want to step in is how do we navigate the real problems um, that women are facing in the workplace? I think it's so interesting what you were just saying, especially about like the the Gwyneth Paltrow piece and the the Kate Middleton, a a friend of mine who um, she is in her later 30s and she's just had um, her first baby. Well, she actually had twins Um, and she has, you know, worked full time in for a big tech company for, you know, her entire career. And she she wanted to keep doing that. But she also, you know, was sort of struggling with the, okay, I also, you know, want to have time to be a mom. Um, And she was recently saying, you know, I'm, I'm trying to sort of figure out how to how to sort of like scale back my work so that I can, you know, do both things. And she was like, I just feel like it's so, she said, she said, now I really understand why so many women 
leave the workforce and then when they come back, there's just not the kind of opportunity for them or, you know, um, they, you know, they can't find something that works for them. Um, and she was like, because so many women like just act like everything's fine. They're like, yeah, yeah, I'm doing both and it's great. It's great. But like, really there's this, this like terrible right, it's, it's struggle. Terrible. Yeah. And that there's just not a lot of transparency around. And I actually, when I worked for Pepsi, like that was a big reason why I had a really hard time seeing my future career there. I'm pregnant now and I'm having, I'm having a baby in the fall. And I saw the struggle that so many women went through of like, how they balanced it and how it was expected that they would balance it without even, you know, batting an eye, um, and without really a whole lot of support and, um, and then sort of like the judgment of, of other women and not being able to say anything about what that struggle might be because they don't want, you know, their male counterparts to think that they're being any less dedicated to their work. So anyway, I just like really appreciate that point of, you know, not that, not that it needs to be this like, oh, we struggle so hard, but just that it's a little bit more realistic and transparent than like, you can do everything and it's really not that hard, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and, and I, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about norms, mm-hmm. right? Screw norms. Like, are you kidding me? There's nothing more natural than having a baby. <laughs> like it is like the, like Every person, every culture, every country, every society, high caste, everybody has babies, right? Like this is not an aberration. Right. How do we get to a space that one of the most normal things that happen in the lives of employees is somehow aberrant or weird or unusual or I just don't like, right. but that's the norm. Right. And that's when I say I reject norms, that's what I'm talking about. Like, it's, they're not right. We have to figure out a way to retain incredibly bright, gifted, smart, talented women in the workplace. It's a loss if we don't cultivate the retention of those women, right? right? Like, yes, they lost, you know, because they had to give up a career that they may have loved or whatever. Um, but we lost because then we get to rooms a full people that approve paying off Bill O'Reilly's um, uh, complaints and Harvey Weinstein and pressing up. Do you think if there were three women, five women in those boardrooms, they would have paid those settlements the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time? Right. Somebody, somebody would have said, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> like, like, stop. You know, we, we are cheated. And that's the thing. Like, that's I, I want some new norms. <laughs> I just do. And I think that creating a space of, of this kind of dishonesty about what the real issues are. People say they want diversity. They say they want inclusion, but they don't want to give up anything. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you buy something with no payment? And there's a payment. There's some sacrifices. There's some things we got to change about how we do things that um, are important. And, and, and they may even be painful. But we have to change them because if we say we want something, we got to do different things to get that something. It isn't the answer isn't women stop having babies. <laughs> Is that really the answer? <laughs> nope. Then 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 we're like Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> but wait, like, but is that really what? But that is what we've said. Just be prepared. Like you know, you really have to choose, and you mm-hmm. that is not what we want to say. And so that's what I mean by the difference between kind of diversity and inclusion. It's changing your mores and your norms to create a space 
that really allow for you to be you. Uh, we should want you to have 20 babies if that's what you want, because that's what we do. That's that's there transcends work, right? This is what we do. And it doesn't mean you get to slack off and you don't get to do high quality work. And it doesn't mean nobody is suggesting that. So how, what, what do we have to do to find some commonality, some area that we can all coexist? Um, you shouldn't get points because you don't have to bear the babies. I just don't right. know that, that. How did we get here? Right. And so when you talk about to me creating an inclusive workplace and being truly inclusive, like part of that is what are you willing to give up? Um, a metaphor I use um, here lately that I came up with at the fun conference. I remember we talked about this, like that, I, it, like on stage, it just hit me. I think um, diversity is like a stadium. It's like the bathrooms in a stadium. Um, if you go to any stadium in America during a concert, during a game, there's this long line of women at the bathroom. There's no line for the men's room. <laughs> Why is that? Why is that? Well, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, a group of really smart white guys got in a room and they designed this fantastic new stadium and it's going to have this and it's going to have that. There were no women in that room. If there had been one woman, she would have said, uh, guys, you might need more women's rooms than you have men's rooms, <laughs> right? But that's not what we had. It wasn't malicious. It was a, a symptom. It was emblematic of the time. And um, it was done with the best of intentions. Everybody wanted to have a good stadium, right? So fast forward to today, epic fail. You have essentially failed half of your um, customer base because I'm missing 20, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes of my concert or of the game because I've got to wait on this ridiculous line. So no argument there. This system has failed. It's not serving a large swath of the population. We all agree. Now, here we get to the solution area. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do? What do we do now? Because there's only two choices of what you can really do. You can reallocate resources. You can say, we've got 10 men's rooms, 10 women's rooms, and we're going to convert five of the men's rooms to women's rooms. Now you have 15 and five, and it's, it's more disproportionate, more appropriately um, um, uh, balanced, right? Um, or the other choices, you can inject resources. You can pull out the kiosk and put some more ladies rooms. You can, you know, do some big construction project and that's going to cost you millions of dollars. Okay. But that's it. There's no, like, that's it. It's not, it's not anybody's fault today that this is the way it is. And I have to counsel a lot of underrepresented founders to be easy with the anger that, that we direct sometimes to white males in tech. They didn't, they didn't birth this baby. Right. And, and the ones today <laughs> did not create this reality. Um, and we have to be easy and really work on common ground instead of being at war mm -hmm. and using language that is harsh and, and alienating. OK, mm -hmm. it's not their fault. But now that you have pointed out the problem, now that you see the problem, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Are we going to put real money into this? Are we going to really reallocate um, resources for this? Because those are the only two things that move the needle. Otherwise, 20 years from now, you go to a stadium 
and you'll still have a long line for the ladies room and a short, no line for the men's room. And at that point it will be your fault because you're making a choice every day you choose not to address the problem. You're making a choice to accept that problem that that's okay because it benefits me. I can muddle through it, but it doesn't benefit half of your population. So how do we create a space that we're really solving problems and we put in real resources and real solutions in place to do that. We're coming to the close of this episode. Before we wrap up, can you let our listeners know um, where they can find where they can find watch your work, where they can find you, and get get a hold of you? Um, sure, uh, I am um, on Twitter and uh, Instagram at official dham, and of course, watch your work TV. Um, and then um, you can find us at watcherwork.com. Join the mailing list. Stay tuned. We're loading up new videos all the time. And we are actually really interested in um, people submitting their stories and their experiences because we want this to be a, a real destination. We want it to be a place where women can come and, and almost any subject, um, there's a video on there explaining how another smart woman handled it. So, you know, we want you to, to be watchers of Watcher Work, but also to send in your stories as well. So we want to hear from you. And I'm, um, you know, I'm Denise, Denise at watcherwork.com. Love to hear what you think about what we're doing. Love ideas, partnerships. Um, we want to build a whole new ecosystem that's really um, breaking down norms, breaking down barriers and creating, not just breaking things down, but also building and creating new, incredible, gorgeous, fabulous things. So hopefully you'll be a part of that. To wrap up then, the way we, the way we finish every show is we will go one by one and give what we believe our answer is to the topic question today based on the conversation. Start with Victoria. Denise will close with you. So Victoria, kick us off here. I guess close, kick us, close, kick us <laughs> kick off, off in the closing. closing us out. <laughs> Start <laughs> um, the end. Our, our topic today was how do you create an inclusive work culture? Um, I really like the idea that Denise brought up a number of times of just not accepting certain social norms and um, yeah, and sort of beginning to put your foot down and just say, well, that might be the way it's been before, but that's not the way I'm going to do it. And I feel confident in the fact that I know my way can also be successful and not being a jerk about it and not being overly confident and, and, um, you know, stupid in that way, but being, you know, when you know that, that your way can be a plausible and right way to do something that not letting others tell you otherwise. My answer for how do you create an inclusive work culture? There's a couple of things I want to touch on here. So one is I, I think Part of this is taking ownership of your role in a particular setting or environment. So, and like what I mean by this is part of what perpetuates poor behavior is letting poor behavior slide. And you have to kind of decide, you know, if, if you're around something like that, you have to decide, like, is it my place to say something, do something? Maybe it's not, but in other cases, maybe you can do something. So, like, you know, the example I can give here is uh, at that conference, Denise, um, you know, there was the after party uh, after the second day, right? And I was asking, like, uh, you know, 
the easiest way to walk there. Someone else at the conference who I had never met in my life before, right? This is my first encounter with him. He's like, well, you can go this way, but if you go down that path, you'll get the scenic route. And I'm like, oh, cool. Like I've been wanting to like, just like, you know, walk along like the river. That seems really cool. He's like, no, no, but like, it's like, it's like really the scenic route. And like, he holds up like his hands underneath his chest, like meaning no. like, he's like, he's like, you'll get a lot of people running by on the running path this hour. And like, I, he just met me. He doesn't know, right? Like, why would you say that to someone you don't know? And, you know, in that moment, I had a choice to be like, well, I've never met this guy. I could chastise him for being creepy or I could do what? And, and you know, the, the, what I could muster in that moment I felt was appropriate was to say, well, you know, like, I really just want to experience the weather. So I'm, I'm, I'll just find my own way there. Not necessarily like telling him, hey, you're an asshole, you're an idiot, you're wrong, you're a moron. But just doing at least what I can feel like I can do in that situation to like not encourage or perpetuate the behavior anymore, at least in the interaction with me, maybe he'll see something. I'm not saying I handle that the best way, but in the moment, that's how I felt I could handle it to someone I had never met before. Um, the other thing I want to say here is I really like, Denise, you said you have to ask the question, what are you willing to give up? And part of that, I think specifically for like startup founders, um, it can be tough to think about these things, especially in the early days, because you're just trying to like freaking get your company off the ground. But even within this, there are little things you can look at. Um, I do this lecture at Loyola through their executive education program a couple times a year on cultural agility. The first thing I do is I show a video. Uh, you may have seen this online before, where it shows uh, two teams passing a basketball. One of the team is dressed in white uniforms, the other team is dressed in black uniforms, and it says, how many passes does the team in white make? And you watch the video, and you get to the end, and it's like, the answer is 13. And then the voiceover is like, but did you notice the moonwalking bear? And you rewind the video and you watch it again. And you're so focused on watching the team pass the ball that you don't notice that there is a guy in a bear costume literally moonwalking through the middle of the basketball court. And you see it again. You're like, how did I miss that? And so then like the, the challenge I set forth for the room for the lecture is what is the moonwalking bear that you're not seeing like in your everyday interactions? So I think that's what I would encourage like startup founders when they think about inclusion as they're even building their companies in the early days. What is the moonwalking bear? Perhaps it is like you're looking at the executive team slide of your pitch deck and everyone looks the exact same. Can you actually say, okay, should we change something here? Are you getting by with unpaid interns not realizing that there are probably really good people who can't afford to take an unpaid internship? Is there something else you can do to just be able to pay people something? Those are the types of moonwalking bears that, I, that exist that I would encourage more founders to start thinking about. So that way, once you do grow, you're not growing with the poor behaviors that were set in stone on day one. Denise, how do you create an inclusive work culture? Um, be an ally. You know, just just be an ally. I, I love what you said. Your two examples you just gave are really incredible of how to um, be make a difference. But guess what? If you're a founder and you're um, busy and hectic and everything's you know crazy, you're just trying to keep your doors open. Guess what? That underrepresented founder that's you know that you met at that event, they're doing that too, and they don't have a tenth of the resources that you have or a tenth of the support. Share your information. You know, in, invite them to grab a beer, 
invite them to the stuff that you've got going on so that they can benefit from the stuff that understand your privilege and just share it. You know, like we act like, like these are sometimes these Herculean tasks. Like I'm not saying fire your COO and put, you know, Tyrone in there. Like that's literally not what we're saying. What we're saying is like figure out a way to be conscious and intentional and deliberate because you've identified a problem and you believe, you believe it's a problem. That's really important. Um, and you know, that you want to be a part of the solution. I think that, that if you want to be a part of the solution, you will be, and you'll find ways to do so. Um, and, and just believe that it's valuable, not just a nice to have, you have to, you're not going to be able to sustain, sustain any kind of change that's based on a theoretical understanding of, of the importance of this. Either you think you need women there or you don't. Either you think this should include minorities or you don't. And if you do, your actions should spill out of that. And, you know, it's really funny how in, in tech specifically, we talk about how highly skilled and trained and whatever all the people are, and they're so smart and they're so whatever, but they just can't figure out a way to include a non-white person in the stuff that they do. Or like, they just can't figure it out. Like, wait a minute, you went to Brown, you went to Harvard, you went to MIT, you're a genius, right? Figure it out, make it a priority and it will be. And, and do it because you wanna produce better products, you wanna be better people, and you wanna create a better world. And that's how we're gonna solve this problem. Being intentional, being deliberate, and being authentic. Denise Hamilton, when we met, I knew right away you would be a good podcast guest. And then when we talked, I, I knew right away we were going to have a really good episode. You did not disappoint. And you have proven once again that things involving <laughs> Hamilton are good things. <laughs> all of them. All of them. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. That wrapped up our conversation. Did you, the listener, enjoy this episode? If so, the best compliment you can give us is a rating and review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews help more people find the show. Therefore, more people get to discover their inner awesome. For full show notes, references, and resources, as well as our guest contact information, you can grab it all at www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com. While you're there, check out our over 100-episode archive and dive even deeper into the awesome. Guess what? That also wraps up Season 9. That's right. We've come to a close on the season taking a little bit of an extended break once again before we launch Season 10 and come back with more of the Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. Some changes on the horizon for the show. A little bit new creative, a little bit new new stuff. I'll leave it at that. Uh, just stay on the lookout for updates and, of course, subscribe to our newsletter at www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com. You'll get all the show updates there as well as my weekly Raj Nation Innovation Newsletter on how to tell your startup story. While we're on the topic, are you a startup in need of a good pitch? Do you have investors lined up? Do you have customers you're trying to get to? Well, it all starts with good communication and getting your point across with the right story. Go to rajnationinnovation.com. And let's have a conversation. That's R-A-J-NationInnovation.com. Check you next time when we kick off season 10. Thank you to Victoria Cohen for co-hosting the entire season. For all of our guests in the season, 
Thank you once again to all of you. I am Raj Nation, and you have been listening to the Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. We will see you next time in a little bit. But in the meantime, take care and be awesome today.